Uh, it is a privilege to be here with you this morning and to share from God's Word. Uh, only a select few get to share Pastor Tim Mackley's pulpit, and so I consider myself to be uh, honored and fortunate to do that. However, I, I did notice, or have noticed, that uh, when he has asked me to speak, he seems to be a couple hundred miles away. I don't know what that means. Like Maybe it isn't confidence that he has in me. He's just trying to let me shoot myself in the foot or something. I don't Anyway, well, my wife thought you would laugh at that more than, than you did, so I'm a little disappointed. Okay, anyway, there you go. <laughs> but it is truly a privilege to be here and uh, to share with you what the Lord has laid on my heart. As I... Um, have gone through this Christian life for over 50 years now. There's one uh, truth, well, there's more than one, but uh, one of the primary truths that I've learned is that the closer that I tried to draw to God, the more difficult it gets. Have you found that to be true? Okay. And uh, if I want to serve him in a meaningful way, there's a difficult road that I have to go through in order to get there. Uh, and uh, that is true of all of us. It's true for all believers. Um, God's plan for us, as it is recorded in Romans 8, 29, uh, he has predetermined that we should become conformed to the image of Christ. So the person I am now, God's intent is to, through the progress of my life, make me more like Christ. That's the end. That's the purpose. That's the end. So everything that happens to me, in me, uh, and in your life has the ultimate goal that it's going to change me from the inside out that I become more like Christ. And we know that job isn't going to be completed until the day Christ comes back, takes us home, or we pass from this earth and are ushered into his presence. And then that process will be complete. But from the day that I am saved, think of it as a graph, if you will. From the day I am saved, I start at ground zero to, in terms of being like Christ. Certain things are given to me. Certain things happen to me that change me uh, from the person that I am. But it's like a deposit that God has given to me. And he says, okay, now I'm going to work with you and through you that through the course of your life, you're going to gradually climb the scale uh, or the graph, if you will, to becoming like Christ. Now, in this life, we know we don't get there. But the idea is progress. You know, if you look at the course of your life, you start at ground zero. At the end, you're supposed to be, and if, as I understand scripture, you will be higher than when you started. Now, the degree to how high you go depends upon our response to him and his moving of his spirit in our lives. Will we yield to him as Romans tells us, or will we yield to the flesh? And that determines our progress up or down on a daily basis. And so it is an up and down process. But over the long haul, we're going to grow. And then when that day comes, when we pass or he comes back, we go from the gradual to the ultimate and complete in Christ. So it is a tough road. 
And God brings into our lives experiences and things that are designed to test our faith and to challenge us to interact and respond to him in ways that will cause our faith and our faith response to grow. Uh, one of those such occasions happened in the life of the disciples, and I want you to take your Bible with me if you have it. And we're going to be looking at three different passages of Scripture. So if you have a little piece of paper or some kind of a marker, according to your insert, you'll notice we're starting, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14, 22 and 23. So you want to put a mark there. Then we're going to also be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52 as a second marker. And the third marker is found in John chapter 6, verses 14 through 21. Now, if you were like me and you came prepared, you would have one of these in your possession. It's called the Harmony of the Gospels. And what it does, it takes all four gospel accounts... And it lays them side by side in a chronological order, beginning with the genealogies of Jesus Christ and ending ultimately to uh, at the end of where the Gospels are. And when each one of those Gospel writers records the same account as one of the other Gospel writers, it will be right alongside of each other. But then there's times when certain Gospel writers recorded an event or told a story or taught a lesson that Jesus taught, that the other writers didn't write, well, he gets the whole page by himself. So if you are a serious student of, of God's Word, and I'm going to say this, and you, I don't think I stand to be corrected, if you want to know Jesus Christ and know God in an intimate way, you've got to study the Gospels of Jesus Christ and study the life of Christ. That is one of the foundational uh growth tools that you have in terms of knowing God and knowing what God's like and how we can uh, relate to Him and knowing Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is the ultimate object of study for any born-again believer. We Because he it is He that we're supposed to become like, right? What Romans 8 9 said, conform to His image, to His personality, to His character. So if I'm going to be changed to him or be like him, i got to find out who he was and what he was like. And this is a tremendous tool because you could be studying one gospel and be missing what the other gospels say. The event, the story that we're going to be looking at today in our study is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke does not record it. And when I get to heaven, I'll ask him, I'll say, what, what happened, buddy? Were you asleep when that class or I? No, I'm just kidding. I don't think I'll be asking those kind of questions. <laughs> um, so I would seriously encourage you. you know, there's certain books that every believer should have in their library. And I guess on your phone or on your computer, you know, depending how old you are. You know, in, my, in my case, it's your library, okay? A Harmony of the Gospels, an in, indispensable tool to help you grow and to know Christ. Now, I also have to help you a little bit understand the timing of the event in which we're going to be looking at. So I want to give you a little chronological background to the miracle we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Just a few facts. 
Just recently, uh, the 12 disciples, or the 70, had returned from their first preaching ministry. Their first preaching mission was a huge success. So they were all excited and fired up about what they were able to do when Jesus sent them out. But on the negative side, John the Baptist had just been killed. So in the back of their minds, hey, we had great success out there, as did John in his preaching ministry, but it could come at a cost. Just a little one. Uh, And Herod, at this point in time, in, in the events of Christ's life, was interested in meeting Jesus. Maybe he had the same intent in mind. So that might have been a part of the disciples' thinking. But it was a time of huge popularity in Jesus' ministry. Multitudes were following him because he was doing great miracles. And his ministry at this point in time was in the the Galilean region up north. And we'll be looking a little bit about uh, to help you understand that too. And it was a time of constant activity. And people were around Jesus and were pressing Jesus and the disciples constantly. So it was a lot of activity and it was an exhausting time in Christ's life. And he was, as a result, seeking retirement, some rest. And so, as we see in the text that we're going to be looking at, he went up into the mountain. Now, there's another factor that goes into helping us understand this event and the significance that it would have for us today, and is that is the geography. Now, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to make a fourth mark, or just for the moment, flip to the back. Every Bible has them. I'm sure the pew Bibles have them there, and find the map. There's a map back there that says Jesus' ministry. I see some shaking heads. No. Oh, oh that's, that's a shame. I didn't check, and I didn't have time to replace the Bibles. Not that I would have. Now, I really would have been in trouble. But uh, if you have your own Bible, it should have a map in the back, if you can find it. And find the map of Jesus and his ministry. And uh, I'm going to turn around for a second, and you tell me, this. I've been teaching John downstairs, so tell me what I'm drawing. If I did this, what is in this area here? Great big area. The Mediterranean Sea. Okay, right next to the Mediterranean Sea, there's a, a lake or something that's shaped like this. That's the, that's the Dead Sea. And then there's a squiggly line that comes out of the Dead Sea, Jordan River, and at the top of the Dead Sea is a thing that's shaped like a human heart. Sea of Galilee. Jesus' ministry went from up, starting in Nazareth, at the sea, uh, up near the Sea of Galilee, in that region, And on festivals, he came down to Jerusalem and was down in Judea. When he got in trouble, he would go back up to Galilee. And so back and forth for three years, Jesus ministered. We're on the Sea of Galilee, okay? Now, the Sea of Galilee is approximately 13 miles high, 7 miles wide at its widest point. By boat, Jesus had escaped the crowds on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, near Capernaum, they sailed across the Sea of Galilee and landed near the town of Bethsaida on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was near the city of Bethsaida, in that region, in the hills 
close to the Sea of Galilee, Jesus performed the first miracle recorded in John chapter 6, which we're going to be looking at. It is there, starting in the uh, uh, Gospel of John, beginning of John, he fed 5,000 people. Stupendous miracle, right? What did he have? In short, does anybody remember what he had? He had five and two, or two and five. Which was which? Five loaves and two fishes. Fed 5,000 people. And as you look at that miracle in particular, you'll notice in the sequence of events, if you look carefully and you ask yourself the question, when did that miracle take place? It said Jesus took the fish and the loaves, he broke them and divided them among the disciples after praying over them and blessing them. He gave it to the disciples, these pieces, and said, okay, you guys go feed them people. Yeah, right. So, but in an act of obedience and in faith, they start walking towards the aisles, the groups that they had. And as they passed the fish, the baskets came back to them, you know, up one aisle, down the other, like when we take communion or offering here. Not only were what was in there that they passed in there, it was multiplied. And what happened after it was all said and done? They, they didn't, you know, they're, they're like my wife. No scraps go to waste. Oh no, that's tomorrow and tomorrow's lunch, tomorrow's, you know, we eat everything. Okay? Which I don't mind. I'm easy to please. Okay? Some of you guys aren't and we need to talk about that. But that being said, There was an abundance left over. So the miracle, in short, took place in the faith and obedient response of the disciples to do what Jesus told them to do. They witnessed firsthand and were the active agents in the miracle. They saw it. They witnessed it. But will you notice with me real quick... You got flip back to the Mark chapter 6 passage, and we'll talk more about it later on. Verse 52. This miracle of walking on the water took place for this reason. For they, the disciples, had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Wait a minute. They just had successful preaching because Jesus commissioned them and by His Spirit enabled them. They came back. They just helped Jesus feed 5,000 people. And they saw it up and down the aisles. But they didn't get it. There was something that they were supposed to learn that they needed to learn at that moment in time, for them to be able to continue to be faithful and successful disciples of Jesus Christ. And it is that which we are going to focus our attention on today. The miracle of Jesus walking in the water is like the meat in a sandwich. The bread on the one side is the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle. 
The bread on the backside is the discourse of Jesus Christ to the people that are crowds, I and the bread of life. If you do not eat me, you cannot have eternal life. And sandwiched in between the miracle and Jesus preaching, which by the way is an illustration to you and I today, the ultimate thing that God calls us to is to preach the word that Jesus Christ is the bread of life and call people to a commitment to a vital relationship to him. The miracles as John describes them throughout his gospel are signs. That was the special word that that John used in his gospel for the miracles that Jesus performed. Let me ask you a question. What is more important, what is the greater reality of driving down Route 22 as you're coming west, passing the 4th Street exit, and you come to a section of the highway called what? Cemetery Curve. What is more important in terms of reality? The sign on the side of the road that says, this road turns sharp this way. And then after that, when this road turns sharp this way, you should be going 35 miles an hour, which I know none of you do. (laughs) And then back the other way, sharp this way. What is more important? The sign that warns you about what's going to happen or the reality of the road? See, the sign won't kill you, but if you drive faster than you should around those corners in bad turn, you know, yeah. That's what, that's it. That's exactly what the teaching of Jesus Christ's miracles are. The miracles are not an end to themselves. They are a sign pointing to the greater reality. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. I am who I say I am. You better listen to me and believe in me. So don't get caught up in the miracles, but we're going to talk about miracle anyway today. So this is all introduction, by the way. (laughs) Okay, that's it. (laughs) All right, so now, they have fed 5,000 people. This is on the West Shore. What happened after he got done feeding them? Though the disciples didn't get it, the people got it. And they said, if he can do this, then we ought to make him our king. Jesus, knowing their intent, escaped from the people, but he did something also very important. This is a lesson for you and I. He put the disciples in a boat and pushed them out into the sea by themselves, which in and of itself was unusual because very rarely, except for special missions, did Jesus ever separate himself from the disciples. They were always with him. So this was a special event. For uh, this miracle that occurs now is uh, one of those trials and tests of life. One of those things that comes into our lives that are designed to test our faith and faith and challenge us to take a step up 
in that graph of belief in following Jesus Christ. Mark tells us they had failed miserably. They were key instruments to this miracle that had just happened, yet they didn't get the most important part of the message. Jesus said, okay, we need to do something different here. So, beginning with Matthew chapter 14, if you got your Bible there, turn there. Very important words. Jesus says, or the text says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him. We need to be very clear from this text, and I would suggest to you, for you and I, and we're going to call this trial, these disciples are going to go through storms. And they are, they are illustrative and they are applicable in our lives to the difficult challenges of life that come our way that are above and beyond our normal means of coping, dealing, or succeeding in. It's a storm. Yet I would suggest from this story there's strength here for you and I, no matter what it is that you're going through in your life now. It might be a physical thing. It might be a job thing. It might be a money thing. It might be a relational thing. You can think of all the things that could happen to you or the events, things that can happen to you, and we can put them all under the big umbrella of storms. Because there's nothing fun about the experience, but the intent in the end is what is valuable. So I would say, I suggest to you, if you have your outline here, this is the first point I, I am getting there, that all the storms of life are planned by God. All the storms of life are planned by God. It was Jesus who personally, intentionally, even forcefully made the disciples get into this boat without them. He had, they had performed a miracle on the hillsides. The people were pressing in. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he knew he had to get away. The disciples had failed. It was a disappointing experience. He said, look, you guys get in the boat and go. What? We don't, you, get in the boat and go. I'll join you later. He didn't tell them how, but I'm going to join. There are times in your life, and I know you've been through them, and you may be through them now. That things happen to you and you step back and say, why is this happening to me? What is going on? Why Why is this happening to me? You need to stop, look at this passage, look elsewhere throughout Scripture and remember this. All things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to His purpose. This is of God. This is for my good. This is going to help me be more like Jesus Christ, even though I don't like it. At this point in time, they didn't know what's happening. At this time, it was just saying, oh, we're being separated from Jesus. Maybe they saw the storm brewing, which was coming down over the hills across the Sea of Galilee. As experienced fishermen, they may have known that, they may not to, but it's, the fact remains, from Matthew and Mark, it is clear that this was planned and ordained by God, ordained by Jesus, and he set up the situation. Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, it is all set up by God. Nothing happens to you, nothing happens to me that God doesn't know about. Not only does he not know about it, 
But because we're his children, it's ordained, it's planned, it's determined, and it's chosen, set upon our dial, as the songwriter says, by the God of love. Planned. It's no, there are no accidents if you're a child of God. But one of the most encouraging things that this passage also teaches me and about storms of my life and your life is secondly that Christ is praying. Christ is praying for us during our storms. Now we're going to take a moment and I want this to sink in. Let this sink in. Let's read what it says. Beginning first in Matthew fourteen twenty three. After he had dismissed them, he sent the disciples ahead. He dismissed the crowd. He said, okay, you've got your food. It's time to go home. You're full. You got enough food to go home. He put them in the boat. He sent them home. What did Jesus do? He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there all alone. Matt Mark says the very same thing. He went up for the specific purpose to pray. Remember I said that it was a time of great activity and physically exhausting and emotionally In every sense, you could see Jesus Christ being pressed in this circumstance. And whenever Jesus was pressed in a circumstance, or whenever a great event was coming up that he knew about, what did he do? He prayed. He would always retreat to pray. He prayed for strength for himself. He also prayed and spoke to the Father so that he would get in a word, marching orders for the next day. Because if you read the Gospel of John, you also learn that Jesus, when Jesus said this, he said, I do nothing unless the Father shows me. Let that sink in your mind for a second. John goes out of his way in his Gospel to make one thing very, very clear. That Jesus Christ was God in flesh. This was God we're talking about. Yet we know from Ephesians and from other portions of God's word, when Jesus left heaven to take on flesh and become a man, he laid aside something. He emptied himself of something. He emptied himself of the independent use of his divine attributes. He never stopped being God. Never stopped being God, but he made himself a servant and became dependent upon the Father, upon the Word of God, and the Spirit of God. Why was Jesus baptized? Why did Spirit? To enable him to do all that he needed to do. Though he was still God, God was working in and through him. So he not only needed to pray to be refreshed, to be given wisdom and to be given guidance, I suggest to you also, in light of the failure of the feeding of the 5,000 
and the absolute necessity in the plan of, in his plan and the plan of God that when Jesus died and rose and left this earth and was going to leave his disciples, they had to be ready and prepared to serve and to suffer. And the only way that they were going to be able to do that is if they were absolutely convinced about something about Jesus Christ that we're going to be talking about. So I believe not only was Jesus praying for himself with the Father, he was praying for the disciples. Because this event, which was about to take place, was absolutely critical in their lives for them to take the next step up in order for them to go forward. One of the the commentators on the Gospel of John has called this period the period of uh, of consideration in Jesus' ministry. In the next chapter, beginning with chapter 7 and 8 and following, they were going to enter into the period of conflict. If you study the Gospel of John and any of the Gospels, you'll see a thread going through them, and it's the matter of belief and rejection. And those that rejected Jesus Christ would grow in their number and in in their intensity against Jesus Christ in their intent to see him killed. That he was moving closer to the cross. We know the disciples faltered down the road a ways, but this event was necessary for them to be able to get through those difficult times. We have two promises in the book of Hebrews that are essential to you and I in our storms. First of all, chapter 13, verse 5, write it down. He promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let me share a personal experience. 16 years ago, my parents were in a serious auto accident in which my father was killed and my mom was seriously injured and she was in the hospital for an extended period of time. It was a very difficult time for me in my life, not just because of that, Uh, At that time, I was also seeking God's leading in the full-time ministry, and I had gone through a very difficult period of time uh, and an experience with a church that I was candidating with. And after a couple months, my mom came out of the hospital, and I remember sitting on the couch with her, and I was in such a state of despair, and so was she, over the loss of her husband and having to live by her own. I remember saying to her one time, I said, Mom, I feel like God has abandoned me. And I know that I know what I know, okay? But you know exactly what I was saying. It feels that way, doesn't it? And when this storm struck these disciples and they were out in the middle of this boat for six, nine hours in the middle of this, in the middle of the night, It sure felt like Jesus had abandoned them. But we know that he's somewhere else praying. That's the second verse I'm referring to. And this is the one that is for you and I. Another one. 
Hebrews 7, 25. Let me, I'll ask it in a question. What is Jesus doing now? What is Jesus doing right now? That's right. It says in King James, he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. You know what that means? If you're a born-again believer, Jesus is talking to the Father on your and my behalf right now. He lives to do that. It's not only what he's doing, it's his passion. Can, imagine this picture. We, read, we sang this morning about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, right? Get this picture. Here's the Father in his throne. And the Son's in his throne next to the Father. He's leaning on his elbow, maybe, or both hands on his armrest, and his face is to the Father. And he's pleading to the Father for you and me. Continually. And I know you go through storms, and I go through storms in life, and it feels like God has abandoned us, but Jesus is praying. And I have just a simple question. If Jesus is praying for you and for me, will we make it? I, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I talked about the graph, there's been a lot of valleys. And in those valleys and in those dark times and those storms when I may not have been reacting the way I should be reacting, I feel like not only maybe God has abandoned me, but I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it to the end that he promised I was going to make it to. Jesus is praying for you and I. He prayed for Peter. Peter, I'm praying that your faith would not fail. Are there any prayers, let me ask you this question, are there any prayers that Jesus gets the answer no to? Do you think that's... You know, if he's God the Father or God, and he's sitting next to the Father, and they are God together, he's now glorified, and they're there in perfect unity and harmony. Whatever he asks for, whatever he pleads for, I I think there's a safe assumption that everything that he wants, he gets, because he's asking in the perfect will of the Father and vice and all that. Okay. When he was up in that mountain, and these guys got in a storm. And evening came and it got dark. They couldn't see him. But we'll see later that he could see them. He's praying for us. I don't know what that does for you. But for me, that's confidence. He who began a work in me is going to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. There's no storm that could separate me from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus. Okay. Third, more strength. Well, actually, more weakness. Storms are sometimes designed to exhaust our strengths. Isn't it ironic in this setting... And in this situation, Jesus pushed a bunch of guys in a boat out onto a lake or a sea, whatever term you want to use. It's a big lake. 
Actually, it's a lake because it was fresh water, okay? And in that boat, the majority of the guys in that boat were what? Fishermen. And this was their home turf. They knew that lake like the back of their head. And they were experienced boatsmen, oarsmen, whatever term you want to use. That was the thing that before Christ came into their life, they did best. So Jesus said, okay, I need to specially design an event for you that's going to sap you dry. You're going to give it your best effort for as long as you can and then you're going to come to the end of yourself and you're going to think, I'm going to die. What is your strength? What do you think you're strongest at? Get ready. (laughs) If it hasn't happened yet, it's coming. You young kids, you think you're invincible. Health, physical, it's coming, okay? You're smart. Something might happen. Whatever it is, whatever it is, God sometimes attacks our strength and brings us to our knees to the point of utter desperation so that He can enter into our situation and show Himself to be so much greater than what we are. And to get a point across. Notice what it says. John 6.47. I'm sorry, 6.17. And when the evening came, the disciples went down to the lake where they got into the boat and set off the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. Okay? And Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three or three and a half miles. Mark 6. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. He gets us at our strength, so he gets our attention. And they needed it. Fourthly, our storms are designed to bring us face to face with Christ. If there's anything that I need and we should want as believers when we go through a difficult challenge in life, is not to be healed from my sickness, not to be delivered from my poverty, not to get a job when I don't have one, not even to have a great relationship. But if anything happens through all of this, above all, as a born-again believer, I need to see Jesus Christ in a new and a fresh way. I need Him. I need to understand that He is who He said He is. And how did He identify Himself? And when the disciples saw Him, 
This is Matthew 14. Walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. They said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. I want you to underline that expression, it is I. For it was not simply Jesus saying to them, Hey guys, it's me. Although I'm coming in a form, and I believe it is such, that Jesus changed his form so that he glowed a bit, and that is why they thought it was a ghost, because it was still dark. Underlined it, it is I, and in the margin of your Bible, write this. I am. If you have footnotes in your Bible, maybe it makes a note there. Jesus said several places in the Gospel of John. John recorded, before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And in every one of those cases, the language of the text is abundantly clear. You see, in Greek, you can say I am by just using a simple verbal form of the to be word. I am. Okay, first person, present tense, so on and so forth. But coupled with that verbal form is the first personal pronoun, I. So in the, in the language, it is pronounced ego, a me. Ego is the word from which we get ego, me. Pronoun. And the verb. It's like a double, double I. Okay, I, I am. And what was Jesus saying when he said that? I'm not only coming to you as Jesus, but I am coming to you as whom? The I am, the great I am of the Old Testament. The I am that made it, met Abraham in the bush. The I am that led Israel, Jehovah. Yahweh of the Old Testament is now standing before them, walking on water with a, with a glowing appearance. And he said, I want you to take courage because I am is here on the scene. Oh, it's me too, guys, if you didn't recognize me. I don't know about you. I don't know, well, let me put it this way. I've gone through a bunch of storms in my life as a believer. I haven't had any personal appearances, at least in this situation here. But in order, but to go on, to move on, I had to take a, a strong, a time where, where in prayer, through his word, through the encouragements of other, to be reminded again that the one that pushed me out on this lake is the one who now the one who now comes to me in the lake is the eternal God from eternity past to eternity future. Reassurance, face to face with Jesus Christ.
There's one note that I uh, thought that I missed. If you notice in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, you'll see there that it says that this was the fourth watch of the night. In Jewish accounting of time in the night, the day began at 6 p.m. From, and here's our, here's our clock, okay? From 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. constituted the first watch of the night. So consequently, from 9 p.m. till midnight was the second watch of the night. And from midnight till 3 a.m. the next morning, it constituted the third watch. And so the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. till 6 a.m. in the morning. As the songwriter says, the darkest hour is just before dawn. Sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., while it was still darkest, Jesus came to them in the darkest time of our storms. Christ often enters into our storms. Another side note here. Sometimes, or not sometimes, just a reminder that you as a born-again believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, are indestructible until it's your time. These disciples were not going to die through this storm because it wasn't their time. And guess what? If it is my time or your time and the particular storm that you're going through is the last storm, where are you going to end up at the end of that storm? In the ultimate face-to-face confrontation with Jesus Christ. And we will see him in all of his glory. Fifthly, and maybe a little bit out of order, storms are for our encouragement. Our encouragement. Let me ask you, would you have responded like the disciples did in that experience? Maybe nine hours. Let's back up a little bit. Nine hours, at least, from 6 p.m. evening all the way to at least 3 a.m. the next morning. Nine hours, and if you read the text carefully, they only went halfway across the lake, three miles. How fast is that? Math, let's see. Nine hours, three miles. It means they went a third of a mile? Am I on with that? You, you know, nodded. Okay. It took them an hour to go a third of a mile. Now, you look at me, and I guarantee you, I don't walk fast. I walk slow. Bad knees, bad back, and big belly. Okay? But I can walk faster than a third of a mile, even at my slowest in an hour. And these guys were pros. What? Come on. Well, where were they? They were smack dab in the middle of the lake, according to the geography, when Jesus came to him. Back to our thought. If you were in that boat, nine hours, you were absolutely exhausted, no strength, sapped, you weren't going anywhere, you were losing, and this storm was going to take you down. This was the end. 
And in the midst of that storm, here comes this ghost-like appearance. And it comes to the boat and says, I am! I don't know about you, but when I think about face-to-face confrontations with God, my natural reaction is fear. If God were to appear to me face-to-face, I would be scared to death regardless of whether or not I was going to sink in a boat. Because I know who I am. A sinner in the presence of a holy God. But when Jehovah comes to his people in the storms of his life, of our lives, it's not to scare us or to judge us. Take courage. Don't be afraid. I am Jehovah God. Our encouragement. Last two thoughts quickly. I know, I don't know what time it is, so I'm all, oh good, I'm good. (laughs) Sixthly, the storms of our lives are opportunities for great acts of faith. There's terrible times when we think we're going to lose it all. We're under it all. There's, and all we are thinking about, oh, God, get me out of this. There's an opportunity to express faith. And here it is. Matthew chapter 14, verse 28, 31. Lord, <laughs> if it's you, Peter wasn't too sure yet. Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Well, the context makes it clear what Peter meant by what he said. Wait a minute. It's nine in the mor- or three in the morning at least. We're all exhausted. Can't row anymore. The storm is going to swallow us. It's pitch black. Now we see this vision of Christ on the water. He's coming to us. He tells us who he is. He assures us that he's God. And some guy gets the idea that he can walk on the water. Now we say a lot of critical things about Peter. Because sometimes he says, stuck his foot in his mouth. But there were times of absolute divine brilliance in that man's life. No one else. There were 12 guys in that boat and no one else said a word as far as going out on the water. A number of years ago, the author John Ortberg wrote the book and it's a great study. You've got to study it. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. And I encourage you to study that. But here was a circumstance where survival was the normal, natural thought process and response. But Peter saw it as an opportunity to personally draw closer to Jesus Christ. I don't even know if he was thinking about even walking on water per se. What he was thinking was, if it's you, I want to come to you. And as far as I know... 
No one else has ever done this or even tried to... Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure someone's tried it. And, and the rest is history, as they say. But when Jesus says, come, and we respond, we can do absolutely incredible things. And let me share one of those experiences I had in my life. A year and a half ago, I had the privilege. Remember, I told you a story about my parents. As a result of this accident, my mother developed traumatic dementia. Dementia brought on by a head trauma. She had uh, multiple surgeries to reconstruct her face and things of that nature. But as she began to heal physically, it became apparent that she started to, starting to lose her mind. The doctors diagnosed it. She slowly declined for 13 years. After about four or five of those years of trying to live on her own and back and forth, my oldest sister determined that she was going to take care of my mom. Took her in. At first, it wasn't too bad. But by year 10, she had gotten to the point where she had regressed to being a one-year, two-year-old child and in the end became combatant. And you know the rest of the story. Some of you have lived through that. I know you have. But not once did my sister ever consider putting my mom in a home. And I'll tell you the honest to goodness truth. At about year 10, I couldn't deal with it. I could not handle being with my mom. I, I, it, it was beyond me. To me, my sister got out of that boat and did something absolutely miraculous. And she, my mother died in her own bed in my sister's home. We all gathered around her and prayed with her. So my, to me, my sister's Peter. In a time of great stress and storm, she trusted God and stepped out and did something miraculous in my mind. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I know a lot of you I know personally a lot of you have been through storms and are going through storms now. Are we able and willing, is it of God in our hearts to say, what can I do greater above? What can I do beyond this storm that's seeking to swallow me up? How can I step out and step above and grasp on to Jesus Christ and do the miraculous our storms are great opportunities some maybe you're not able to do that but at least maybe we ought to be able to pray that dear god how can i bring glory to you by doing this well that's why god brings storms it's ultimately not for us it's for him. And we see that in our last observation here. Verse 7. 
I'm sorry, point seven. Storms are designed to lead us to deeper worship. What were the disciples supposed to have learned from the feeding of the 5,000? Mark 6.52 says they didn't. Why did they miss the point? Or what, what, what is it that they missed? Why, what, what exactly was the expression of their hardened hearts? Well, we find it in these last statements. Matthew 14, verse 33. Jesus reached out, he caught Peter, brought him, and he chided him a bit for his little faith, but he had more than I did. And when they, Peter and Jesus, got into the boat, the wind died down, and then those that were in the boat worshipped him. They worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And that is the point. Those disciples had been with Jesus, had seen countless miracles, had served with Jesus, had accomplished great things for him, but at some way, some, somehow, way, shape, or form, they didn't get it. And before we get too hard on the disciples, how about us? How many things, miraculous things, has God done in and through your life? I can name one for sure. Probably the greatest miracle of all, he saved you. He saved you. He saved me. Yet somehow, someway, along the road, we lose. We lose our appreciation for Jesus, the great I am. And he has to put us through a storm so that at the end of it, at the very least, we fall on our face before him saying, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. And because their life wasn't finished and God's purposes in them wasn't over, they took him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The wind died down. It was the next day. Isn't that amazing? Multiple miracles. How in the world did Jesus see them when he was on the up, up on the mountain praying at the darkest hour of the night, three miles out in the sea, pouring down rain? There's no, there were no headlights or streetlights or anything like that. But it says Jesus seeing them straight up there. So we're never out of his sight. Amen. Amen. Praise God.